0: Thanks, John. Good morning, Village Church. So, as Pastor Matt said, uh, this is the first of our Advent series. When I was growing up, Advent to me was a calendar that we that we hung on our our wall. It was uh, something that my great grandmother made for us. My grandma Betty. Uh, she. It was a big fabric thing that had a, a Christmas tree at the top and then a bunch of little uh, pockets that. Every morning you would pull out a little trinket out of one of the pockets and hang it on the, hang it on the tree. It was a fun tradition for, for me and my brother especially. Advent is an old-timey kind of word. It, it refers to the coming of Jesus Christ. And the word Advent we use more broadly for the arrival of something or someone noteworthy we celebrate Advent as the arrival of the most important person in history, Jesus Christ. But Advent is about more than the birth of the most important man in history. It's more than happy birthday, Jesus. It's more than Advent calendars, certainly. Uh, it's about God's arrival in person on the scene. It's the good news of God's definitive decisive intervention into the story of mankind. This morning, we're going to look at this familiar Christmas passage in Luke 2, but mostly we're going to consider verses 10 to 11, the angel's message to the shepherds. These shepherds are out working in the fields at night. They're watching over the flock. They're protecting them from predators that might come. They're watching over them as they wake up and and eat eat their food, and take little sheepy naps, uh, maybe even deliver a, nap, a, a, a lamb at night, and bam, out of nowhere, here comes this terrifying angel appears to them. It says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It will be for all the people. What is this good news? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Who is Christ the Lord? Now, that phrase, Christ the Lord, is packed with meaning. The Christ is here. It's Greek for the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Old Testament is full of prophecies looking forward to this Messiah who would come, who would sit on the throne of David as a descendant of David and who would rescue the people of Israel. The title, Lord, is packed with meaning as well. This Christ would rule. He'd be a ruler. He would reign over his people. One of the most well-loved Christmas verses, which I'm sure a lot of you have on your Christmas cards this year, is the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9, which emphasizes Christ as a divine ruler. It says, "For For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The angel is saying, this Christ is here. This Messiah is born tonight. And not only that, he will be a savior which the people knew was good news because they knew they needed a savior. They need need to be saved. To get a sense of how big a deal this was to the people of Israel at the time, you only have to look a little bit ahead to the end of chapter two, where we see the reactions of Simeon and Anna, who sees Jesus when he's taken to the temple when he's only a few days old. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise to save his people. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people, Israel. Verse 36, it says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. is what I have been waiting for. This is what we have been waiting for for so long. The Christ is here. Praise God for the salvation He is going to bring through this baby boy. When the shepherds hear the good news from the angel, they say, We need to go check this out, right? And, and a billion nativity scenes are, are launched. If they're seeing Jesus, says they returned glorifying and praising God, for all they had heard and seen, as as it had been told them. They praised God that they were given the privilege of seeing the Christ, the Messiah, born that day. But in reality, their their knowledge about this was limited. They knew that the Messiah would be a savior, but did they really know all that that meant? Did they really know all that entailed? They knew that a child. A man had been born, but they had a limited perspective on who Jesus actually was. Even Jesus' parents at this point didn't really know who Jesus was. As a result, their understanding of what the angels meant when they said, this is good news of great joy, that was limited as well. But we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of the whole book, the whole story. So to help us see why this is such good news, we're going to look at this passage from Luke through the lens of a different passage from Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, you were like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. You were dead. But God, God acted, God intervened, He did something decisive. That's what Paul emphasizes in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. God did this. God intervened. Notice who gets the praise. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen. So the message of Christ's birth is first and foremost Good news because it is the, in, the decisive inbreaking of God's plan of salvation, something God's people have been waiting for a very long time. But it's also good news because Jesus' incarnation, his becoming a man, is critical to every aspect of our salvation. We're going to look at how the incarnation relates to four things this morning. First, the problem of man's sin. Second, Jesus' perfect obedience. Third, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And fourth, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So how does the incarnation relate to the problem of man's sin? Well, for a very long time now, humanity has been in really a dreadful state. Our first father, Adam, he chose to disobey God. He chose to listen to a lie that he could be like God in a way that God didn't want. Adam rejected God's rule, and he chose a path of self-rule and self-exaltation. And from that one act of sinful rebellion, the whole of mankind was subjected to the reign of sin. We sin now because that's in our very nature. That's who we are. We're all guilty before God as a result. So in one sense, that is what it means to be born as a man or a woman. We are made in the image of almighty God. But that image is broken, is distorted by the sin that is in our nature. We are truly an unbroken chain of sinners from Adam to now. But with the birth of Jesus, everything changes. There's a new kind of man Unlike each of us, he's born, he's conceived of the Holy Spirit rather than just his earthly father. As a result, he's born without sin. He has no sin nature. That's why Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last Adam. The Bible's clear that in our natural state, we are without hope. As it says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our own desires and not the desires of God. As a result, we're children of wrath. We are subject to God's holy, righteous wrath. But with the new Adam, there's new hope for a whole new mankind. A hymn by John Newman says it this way, O loving wisdom of our God, When all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. We see this hope play out throughout the course of Jesus' life because he always obeyed perfectly the Father. And that's the second thing we're going to look at, how the incarnation relates to Jesus' perfect obedience. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice that what matters here is Jesus' obedience as a man. What matters is that Jesus obeyed perfectly as a human living according to the law of God. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, we are credited with Jesus' righteousness. We get his righteousness in our account, as it were. None of that is possible, though, if Jesus does not take on human flesh, if he does not become a man. If he does not become the final Adam, the perfect Adam. As Philippians 2 shows us, Jesus' perfect obedience led him to the ultimate act of obedience. He obeyed to the point of his death on the cross. And that's the third thing we're going to consider how the incarnation relates to Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. In Romans 5, Paul calls this the one act of righteousness and obedience of Christ. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul compares how Adam's one act of disobedience resulted in death for all who were descended of Adam, that is, all of us, with how God, how Jesus' one act of righteousness resulted in life for all who would be in, found in Christ by faith. We refer to this as Jesus' substitutionary death, his substitutionary sacrifice. We deserve death. We deserve God's holy wrath. But Jesus died in our place on the cross. Jesus took God's wrath. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time God died. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now to see why Jesus' incarnation is critical for this. I wanna consider a common gospel analogy you might hear. It goes like this. There's a man who gets caught for committing a crime and he's guilty of it. And he goes before the judge and lo and behold, the judge is actually his father. But his father is a righteous judge. He's a just judge. So he's not gonna just you know, let his son go. And so he declares him guilty. And he pronounces his verdict. He sentences him to a long prison term. But as they're about to lead the son away, the father stands up and says, wait. And He steps down off the bench and he takes off his robe. And with tears in his eyes, he says, I'll take the punishment. And as they're cuffing the father and leading him away, they, they free the son. It's a compelling story, and I think it captures the heart of God's love in sending Jesus. As it says in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But like any analogy, it falls short of the real thing. And one way it falls short we can see in Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to God when the wicked are justified by men instead of being punished. It's an abomination to God when the innocent are punished by men instead of being set free. So how can God be just? When he justifies wicked sinners. How can God be just when he punishes an innocent man? The only innocent man. The solution to this conundrum is found in the fact that God became man. No mere man could pay the penalty. God had to do it. Jesus, the eternal son of God, by whom and through whom all things were made, became part of his own creation. And he did it so that he could suffer justly for our sins. In Romans 3, Paul says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and he is the justifier. He is righteous and he is the one who makes us righteous. All of that happens through the incarnation of Jesus. The last thing we're gonna look at is how Jesus' incarnation is connected to his resurrection from the dead. Having paid the penalty by dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus rose again on the third day. And we will too die unless Christ comes back first. But because of Jesus, we have the hope that we will be resurrected with him. Not only that, we have the hope of his resurrection life in us right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrect- resurrection like his. And in Romans eight eleven, Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you that's why Jesus is referred to as the firstborn among many brothers we're going to follow after him now let's go back to the beginning back to the lens of Ephesians 2 the rest of the picture is the resurrection the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The new man, the new Adam, has been resurrected. And because he has gone before us in resurrection, we have the hope that we will be resurrected to be with him. We will truly see Jesus face to face. We will be with him. We will be like him. That's what the incarnation is about. As well. So, if we sum it up, we have our good news statement this morning Jesus accomplished our salvation by becoming one of us so that he could live a perfect life as the new Adam, justly pay the penalty for our sin, and go before us by being resurrected from the dead. That's good news. And that's good news the world needs to hear, right? What happened when the shepherds heard this? They shared that good news. They wanted to tell people about this. Our application this morning comes straight from the text. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What's the proper response to the advent, to the incarnation of Christ? It's worship worship. Even with their limited perspective on the meaning of the good news, the meaning of the birth of the Messiah, when the shepherds return from seeing him, they glorify and praise God. We see it even clearer, though, in the angel's response to the good news that's preached that night. Right after the angel announces the birth of Jesus, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What an awesome scene. That's worship. How much more though should we worship God for this? How much more should we worship him for the glory of his grace that was revealed to us by sending his son to be born as one of us? So that through his life, his death, his resurrection, we can have our sins forgiven, we can be made new, we can have new lives created in the image of Jesus and raised to new life forever with him. One of my favorite Christmas songs I think really captures this well. We're going to sing it this morning, but listen to the words of O Holy Night O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. Is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You were pining for a Savior, for a solution, till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. But God, God intervened, God worked. He appeared with us. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The new Adam is here, the Savior is here, the Christ is here, hope is here. Fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices, oh, night divine night when Christ was born. Fall on your knees in worship at this. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for that holy night, that divine night. In one sense, it was a very human night. With Jesus being born as any other human is born. But in another sense, it was a very divine night. The inbreaking of but God, the inbreaking of your plan of salvation. That you sent your Son to be born as one of us, to be with us, the new Adam, to live a perfect life, to ultimately go and die in our place righteously. And we thank you, Lord, that you went before us in resurrection and that we have the hope that we will be with you. We will see you because you came to us. Lord, we glorify and we praise you, God, for sending your son to be one of us. And we glorify and praise Jesus the new Adam, the true Adam. Help us, Lord, to turn our hearts to worship you this morning. Change us. Make us more like you. And help us to take this good news that the world so desperately needs to hear and just share it because it is such good news. We thank you and praise you, Lord. Amen.